Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research that they've been performing in recent times. Quantitative, qualitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. On today's episode, I'm really excited to bring you a conversation with Dr. Fernando Tormos-Aponte of the School of Public Policy at UMBC. Dr. Tormos-Aponte is a scholar with several academic appointments. In fact, beyond his assistant professorship at UMBC, he's also a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins University and a Kendall Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists Center for Science and Democracy. Man, for some reason, it seems like we always feature social scientists on this podcast who stay incredibly busy. You know, actually, when I put my powers of social science deduction to the test, I think it may not really be that much of a coincidence after all. It's not the greatest superpower in the world, but, you know, selection bias, detection man, I guess it kind of has a ring to it. Anyway, Dr. Tomas Aponte is known especially for his work on social movements, like the climate justice movement and movements that protest inequality. His research focuses on the role of social movements in pressuring governments and corporations to address issues of inequality. It offers insight into the pathways by which social movements manage to survive over time and become politically impactful. You know, I'm reminded of the incredible power of social movements over the past couple of years when I think back to some of our own earlier episodes. Dr. Kay Whitehead, for instance, reminded us of the ways in which the unique circumstances of the COVID-19 era fostered a renewed urgency among Black Lives Matter activists. And on the next episode, we're going to hear from several UMBC undergraduates, Laura Toller, Daisy Chitika Maya, and Kayla Brooks, about social activism in Baltimore since the death of Freddie Gray. While these stories and many others showcase the urgent need for more research on contemporary social movements, Dr. Tormos Aponte's recent work has shed light on a vital concept in the field, intersectional solidarity. In our interview, Tormos Aponte explains just what this concept is and how it matters for all kinds of organizations, groups, and political movements. Let's take a listen. Dr. Tormos Aponte, thank you so much for agreeing to be with us today. We're really excited to have you and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So it's really apparent from both your scholarly publications and your many media appearances that, I mean, really, you've got a lot of research interests. And recently, I've noticed that you've been writing a lot on this theme of intersectional solidarity, which is a concept that I'd really love for you to unpack for us today. What is intersectional solidarity and how did you become interested in it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, first of all, for this invitation, and I'm happy to be here. Um, so intersectional solidarity is a notion that Black feminists and Mestiza feminists, third world feminists, have been developing for quite some time now. And it is the notion of, it's a form of solidarity that puts intersectionally marginalized peoples at the forefront of advocacy work. So what do we mean by intersectionally marginalized folks? These are folks who live in the intersection of different marginalized groups. So for instance, folks who identify 
as being black or as and at the same time as being a woman or indigenous or Latinx among other kinds of marginalized groups in our societies, when they live at these intersections and they experience life as a, as a result of the interaction between these different groups, this, these different lived experiences, these are folks who we consider to be intersectionally marginalized. And traditionally, we have been thinking about solidarity in ways that did not really prioritize intersectionally marginalized groups. So when you look at the sort of history of thinking and acting in ways that are um, in solidarity with a particular group. Usually we used to think about solidarity as something that we would express towards workers. So labor solidarity was one of the like main ways in which we thought about solidarity. And in that sense, we're talking about solidarity between folks who may share class condition, right? Their uh, economic conditions, their economic circumstances. So folks who are workers, who do not own the product of their work, who do not own the means of producing their work. But over time, there there have been a lot of uh, feminists who have said that this was a really limited way of understanding solidarity and that we should think about solidarity in broader ways and in ways that are more deeply connected with other forms of marginalization that include but are not limited to subjugated class classes right so working classes and the working poor and that's how uh, i've been working to expand on this notion of intersectional solidarity so essentially what i've been doing with that work is to look at the implications for activism of the work on intersectionality and you know folks usually think about intersectionality as something that emerged with the coining of the term intersectionality by kimberly crenshaw uh, and even though crenshaw was an important contributor to these to this tradition of thinking there have been a number of feminists and black feminists particularly who have said actually uh, this is part of a broader tradition and it's been traced back to feminism, not just within the United States, but globally of working class uh, women of color, women from what it was known as the third world global south nowadays. And these are folks who have been struggling, but who were usually neglected and marginalized within movements. So intersectionality was really something that emerged out of activism and that is now being used in more widespread ways in academia. So with this work, I'm hoping to contribute to efforts to bring intersectionality back to its activist roots and to draw the political and activist implications of this term. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this is an incredibly vital project for the field of social movements. And I think that really you've struck on something, um, you know, just just very meaningful in terms of the core conceptualization of this idea. And um, I think in, in doing so, you know, people who have read your research, people who have have, uh, have seen this out in the field um, have, have noted that you've done a lot of uh, work that is really sort of uh, closely linked to specific methodologies to sort of investigate this this concept on the ground. And so, of course, this is a, a podcast about the social sciences. And, you know, a lot of the time we're going to talk about data at some point. Right. And so, um, you know, for example, on an earlier episode, I spoke to Professor Zoe McLaren um, and, and she was talking about some of her research processes that involved really kind of 
big data processes, right, where she was stitching together these big quantitative public health data sets, um, sort of uh, having to merge data sets together in order to arrive at the the specific kind of conclusions that she made about um public health crises and uh, infectious diseases. Um, But obviously, this kind of research is going to lend itself probably to some different kinds of data collection. So I'm really interested in uh, going from kind of concepts uh, to, to, to sort of this, this actual empirical research that you're performing. Um, what kind of methods are you bringing to, to this and what kind of data are you collecting to really uh, explain to audiences and to, to you know, develop and to um, validate essentially the idea that, that intersectional solidarity is, as you say, this sort of global concern? So this is a great question and I'm happy you asked it. And what's funny is that I've never used a data set for any work on intersectional solidarity, not because I'm against using data sets, I use it for other work, but this work really emerged of my reading of, of feminists of color and feminists from the global South um, and particularly black feminists in the United States. So. I was in particularly inspired by the Kambahi River Collective Statement. And when yeah, I could, could you tell us a little bit about, about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Kambahi River Collective Statement was a group of folks. The Kambahi River Collective was a group of folks, many of which are now known as some of the most important feminists in our times. And they came together and they were critical of their exclusion from the civil rights movement as women. And they were critical of their exclusion from the women's movements as black women so they said this is why we need to have activism that centers those who are uh, marginalized by virtue of being of experiencing life not just through uh subjugated race but also through a subjugated uh, class and gender so they drafted this statement in i believe 1975 and this statement was a wonderful sort of of it was the first mention of identity politics which of course are now thought of as uh, of putting identity before everything else and particularly before class concerns but if you read the Kambahibur Collective, you notice that they're working class women. And they said, no, we have to also address the ways in which existing economic systems exploit us and marginalize us as well. So they were very attentive to the issues of class. They just think that if you only focus on class, then you're never going to end marginalization generally because you're always going to have subjugated races and genders among other lived experiences. So when I read this Company River Collective Statement, I said, this has implications for activism today. And that's how I started thinking about this. And I wrote it first as a, as a theoretical piece, uh, not really thinking that I would do much empirical work with it. Uh, and the funny story is that I wrote it for a prelim exam as part of my uh, <laughs> time in graduate school. And I had forgotten that this prelim exam was due like the next week. And I wrote it in like a weekend. I locked myself in my office and wrote it in a weekend. And it turned out to be my most cited publication ever. I don't know how that happened, but it goes to show that sometimes uh, reading stuff really attentively and all in one time and not having time to waste can help. That's so a, that's, that's a that super relatable story, by the way. That's incredibly relatable. <laughs> this is how this emerged. And yeah. again, I didn't expect to come back to it, for, you know, from an empirical standpoint. It was more of a theoretical, I was hoping to make a theoretical intervention and to sort of highlight 
this important contribution that I think uh, people before me had done to bring it back into our uh, current academic debates. But um, I remember when I was an undergrad that I once had a, a poet in a workshop that I attended at the University of Puerto Rico who said the following thing. He said, we should only write about the things that we are privileged witnesses of. And it took me mm. years to digest this. I, at first, did not know what he meant or what that meant for my own work. At the time, I asked for myself, like, what am, what am I a witness of? Not anything exciting or anything that I think speaks to many other <laughs> lives. So I could never really relate very much to that until still, a few semesters a, after that. What an idea for a social scientist to contemplate, right? Yeah, right. Usually we're told to be far removed from our subjects. We're told to be far removed from what we want to study. But what this poet was telling me, no, what we should be writing about is the things that we experience, the things that we live, the things that we participate in. So I resisted for a long time doing this because this is really counter to what a lot of us are taught in our programs uh, in graduate school. And I also resisted writing about what I had experienced and lived in Puerto Rico because I was always told that if I wrote about Puerto Rico, I was going to be known as the, as the Puerto Rican who wrote about Puerto Rico and nothing else. I had no ideas that had anything to bear on anything else. And it's very yeah, easy you, to forget about Puerto Rico. <laughs> you, you get this uh, epithet thrown around sometimes, right? This idea of me search, right? Where it's, I'm just Absolutely. researching myself. And so, so what does this really tell us about the broader social world? Which, I, you know, I, I use the word epithet uh, intentionally. Right. <laughs> and in this case, I couldn't even say it was about me because this is a black feminist and mestiza feminist term. <laughs> right, this wasn't right. even me search. Right. Like, what was I doing? I had no idea. Well, a few semesters after that, uh, hearing that from that poet, I became involved in a two month long occupation of our university in Puerto Rico, a strike that demanded uh, that the university refrain from raising tuition. And we were pretty steadfast and we won. We blocked tuition hikes. And I, that was what inspired me to, write, to study movements. Um, but I was still resisting studying Puerto Rican movements until I went to the United States and I started writing about movements. I started learning more about intersectionality and started thinking like, what movement do I know? Do I really know about? What movement do I, have I been a privileged witness of? And it was the Puerto Rican student movement. And I looked at it through the lens of intersectional solidarity. And I drew from my own participant observation of it, as well as the participation and, and experiences of my friends who were activists in that movement. So I started interviewing folks, going back. When I went back for, for the breaks, I interviewed my former uh, colleagues in the movement. And th so the data, uh, if you can call it that, was um, our own observations. So some folks have called it autoethnography. Others have called it participant observation. And, you know, one of the ways in which we analyze this data is that we try to understand how people assign meaning to these experiences. How do, how do they experience this? How do they describe these experiences? How do they make meaning of these, of these structures in play where they're trying to be active in? How do they make meaning of the policies that they're trying to uh, address or change? How do they make meaning of the people who are, they are in contention with? 
the people who are they trying to compel to change a policy. And that's what that's the kind of data that I've been using auto ethnographic uh, data and then collaboration with my my friends, folks like Shariana Ferrer Nunez, a black feminist activist in Puerto Rico, who went on from being uh, activist in the Puerto Rican student movement to being an activist in the feminist movement in Puerto Rico and creating a new black feminist organization. So then we wrote together about her experiences. And in that point, uh, it was fantastic. It was this complicity because I brought, we, we were able to sort of combine her lived experiences with what I had learned from my own experiences and movements, as well as what the literature was saying. And uh, my, my, my third piece on this topic was with her uh, that we just recently published, and it was about uh, intersectional solidarity in the in the feminist movement in Puerto Rico. We called it the intersectional synthesis because it's it's the idea that people arrive at a, this approach of solidarity, of enacting solidarity, this intersectional approach to enacting solidarity through the combination of theory and practice. It is in practice that they cont contemplate these theories and just their practices. And it is through practice that they also contemplate their theories and reassess them and re-theorize. And we started taking the words and experiences and thoughts of people on the ground and participants of these movements as theories themselves, as theory builders, and started thinking about movement-generated theory. And that's what I'm trying to inject in our conversations in the academic realm. So that's, that's kind of what, where we're at with that project. <laughs> I, I just love that you've brought us this perspective on social science and what it means to do scholarship in this in this realm, especially given, uh, you know, again, our earlier um, episodes where we've seen sort of this broad, um, you know, just just this broad set of perspectives uh, from, you know, the, the biggest data kind of large N quantitative data sets bringing us powerful insights to, to help us combat infectious disease to this, the autoethnographic method really bringing richness, right, to to an understanding. And again, I really appreciate this idea that, that right, these th the theory is forming the conversations, but the conversations themselves are generating, right, new theory. And uh, in that theorizing, we're becoming stronger as social scientists and becoming better at um, understanding really right what the goal is right we're better at understanding the 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 reality of the social world that that we're living absolutely. in absolutely um, so yeah I, I super appreciate that insight and I wonder you know I wonder about the next steps uh, as well you know so um, obviously with the this intimate familiarity that you have with these cases in Puerto Rico I wonder if you're going to continue to work with these groups or if, if you're thinking about also applying these this kind of framework to other groups you know for example I mean something that popped into my head sort of immediately as we're talking about solidarity is um, teacher unions in the United States and some of the ways that um, you know, we've witnessed kind of intersectionality occurring as uh, as they ex exert power in um, surprising places, right? Sometimes places where you mm -hmm. would think that, um, you know, uh, organizers would have much success, uh, you know, kind of the, the so-called red states to, to paint them with a very mm -hmm. broad brush. Um, are, are there other places that you're thinking about applying this framework or maybe working with other scholars to better understand uh, the global dimension of intersectional, intersectional solidarity? Yeah, absolutely. And I should say that there's a big debate on the extent to which intersectional solidarity is the concept that travels. Yeah. And I am personally someone who thinks that it's not up to us to consider whether it travels or not. I think that hard it already did. Like people are using intersectionality already beyond the confines of the United States. So uh, has it does it travel? Yeah, it already did. Um, so 
Yeah, I think that we can definitely start assessing and understanding experiences, lived experiences and episodes of contention outside of the United States through this intersectional lens, particularly recognizing that the intersectional uh, sort of a, a tradition, the tradition of intersectionality is not an ex United States uh, tradition and that it draws a lot on African diasporic experiences. It draws a lot on uh, experiences from India. It draws a lot of experiences from activists in Latin America, in the Caribbean, and in the global south more generally. Uh, so I don't think the question is whether the intersectionality uh, can travel uh, beyond the United States. I think it's the United States that's been traveling to try to understand it. Um, so yeah, I think we can apply it in other uh, settings and I've seen fantastic applications of it. So for instance, the work of Erica Townsend Bell, who uh, does some fantastic work on black feminist activism in Uruguay. So one of the things that uh, Erica Townsend Bell, who's been an inspiration to my work, uh, argues is that in the process of engaging in activism, uh, movements ask themselves, what are the actual categories of identities that are relevant to the issues that are dealing that they're dealing with? And on the basis of those considerations, those reflections on the categories of identities that are relevant, they form agendas, they form movement structures and leadership around these sort of, of understandings of the relevance of different identities. Um, so I thought that, that that's one of the things that informed my idea of this synthesis between theory and practice. And they can't, that came out of Uruguay. So I, I mean, a, a black a black feminist scholar doing work in Uruguay, you know, um, talk about, you know, traveling and intersectionality, who traveled where. I don't think there's a, a, a point in trying to understand like, claiming sort of uh, that, that sort of genealogy as exclusively belonging to one particular group, although folks have been very careful to recognize the important and, and unprecedented, like an unmatched contribution of the black feminist experience in creating this tradition of intersectionality. And that is important, something that I think I would like to continue to contribute to, to recognizing. Uh, where do I see myself uh, applying this? I'll be completely honest. I never had a plan to do this. Uh, this is never my plan. Uh, intersectional solidarity was was a term that came to my head, and then I realized that it was not only you know something that I that I was thinking about, but that my friends back in Puerto Rico were living like they were themselves building an intersectional approach to organizing, and I found that to be fascinating. And it seems like other colleagues of ours are finding it fascinating too because they're reading it inciting it. So I think that I'm privileged in the sense that I've witnessed a lot of activism in Puerto Rico and that I have access to that community, which is something that, you know, we need to consider when we're doing uh, field work and qualitative work as well. Like we don't just get to play with numbers behind the screen. Like we actually have to build trust in a community. Like not everyone gets to go into this commu community, into a black feminist group in Puerto Rico and say, hey, I'm going to do research on you and people be like, sure, interview me and then publish right. it. Right. You, know, you, get, like, you, get no. the, you get the impression, right, of the 50s, you know, researcher with the horn rim glasses and the white lab coat, you know, sort of walking into a community with a clipboard saying, oh, hi, I'm yeah. going to study you, it's right? That's not, like not that. really how it works. <laughs> no. And, you yeah. know, one thing that we should be careful of not doing and something that I think 
uh, my colleagues in Puerto Rico have pointed out to me is that they've had a lot of folks who have been really extractive right. in the way in which they do research. Like they go in, they ask their questions, then they take all that knowledge that they generated, the actives generated, and then they publish it as their own. Right. You know, and it, you start questioning, like, what point was that your idea or like, you know, there, so I've moved into offering and, and, and authorship, co-authorship to the folks who I'm interviewing on the ground who's, who are doing this kind of work to recognize that they are also co-producers of right. these thoughts. And I'm the right. one who's fortunate to be an observer, an analyst of them. Yeah, deservedly so, right? I think that's that's a really reasonable uh, reaction to the idea that these people are co-producers of knowledge in in this paradigm so uh yeah it's a it's it's a it's a wonderful um uh, I, I think goal is is to to bring the participants themselves into the production of research that we would think is part of the credit and credibility cycle of academia right which is uh, something absolutely altogether apart, and something uh, to, to add on that before we move to the next topic is sure. there's this scholar who I find to be very fascinating, uh, Nelson Maldonado Torres, who has been a contributor to these th this uh, uh, feminist school that this group that I worked with in Puerto Rico hosts um, multiple times a year, uh, La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción. So Nelson Maldonado Torres has these, I think it's called the 10 Thesis on Decolonialism. And I find it fascinating. One of the things that Nelson Maldonado Torres says is that, you know, we should consider people to be uh, knowledgeable about their own lived experiences. Like they are actually able to speak uh, for themselves uh, and they are actually able to generate uh, theory. So that's part of the reason. The int th th This is part of the way in which we build a decolonial uh, way of, of doing things in our academic uh, spaces is by, you know, recognizing their own uh, intellectual processes, abilities, and contributions, and uh, and recognizing their 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 ability to to theorize. So, I hope that this is something that more and more folks can can approach in their own work. I hope so too. And on that note, I, th I think I had one question for you that I always ask uh, our interview guests, and that is, obviously, you're a researcher and somebody who's active in the field, but you're also somebody who's involved in teaching. And I was wondering if you had any advice for fledgling social scientists or hoping to get involved um, and, and to improve their social science as they work towards potentially a career in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a number of things. You know, one thing is that we're often told to just stay in our lane and focus, focus, focus on getting out of your program. Sure, let's get out of your program, but don't just don't just go through your program without having a meaningful experience. You know, I think that we, when we're in a program, uh, particularly the programs that I think we've been able to develop at UMBC, I think we have an opportunity to really question our own ideas and understandings of the social world. Uh, and we should take that opportunity. So I think that we shouldn't be too concerned with trying to be perfectly objective all the time and removed from the people and the questions that we're trying to understand. I think that we should come closer to those spaces that we're trying to understand and you know build trust with the communities we'd like to work with and to think about our work as something that is not just done for the sake of advancing knowledge uh and and remove ourselves from this tradition of building knowledge for the sake of building knowledge uh and thinking more about 
you know, what are we really trying to do? What is the impact of what we're doing? Uh, and who are we doing it with and how are we doing it? You know, questioning the extent to which we can develop uh, a, a tradition of work, an agenda of work that is, is helpful for uh, addressing social problems and advancing, advancing efforts to uh, address questions of equity and justice. So I think that we're in a, in a perfect setting to do that. So we should definitely harness that opportunity and and um, seek mentorship from multiple folks who we have in our institution and beyond, who are wonderful, wonderful uh, guides for for this kind of work. Dr. Thomas Aponte, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate all of these insights. And uh, I just wanted to mention that, um, as you mentioned, several pieces of research from uh, colleagues and other scholars, we're going to throw those in the show notes uh, so that, so that uh, everyone will be able to access those um, when they when they want. So uh, again, thank you very much for being Absolutely. here. I really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Hey, it's my pleasure. And if you're a UMBC student and you're looking for a nice class to take next semester, make sure to look out for my social movements class this spring 2022. All right. I'll give that an endorsement as well. <laughs> Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. I really enjoyed getting to hear from Dr. Thomas Aponte about intersectional solidarity especially because his recent scholarship has been so central to the field of social movements in recent times. But as our conversation really emphasized, it's not just Dr. Tormos Aponte's theories that have caught scholars' attention, it's also his methods. On today's Campus Connection, I want to highlight another UMBC scholar who's been using related methods to make vital discoveries about power and agency in Colombia. Dr. Tanya Lizarazzo is an associate professor in the UMBC Department of Modern Languages, Linguistics, and Intercultural Communication. In recent years, Dr. Lizarazzo has co-produced a digital storytelling project called Mujeres Pacificas. According to the project's website, it was created in collaboration with the Gender Commission of Cocomasia, a black farmers organization that manages part of the collective territories achieved by black communities in the Colombian Pacific. As an alternative to writing-centric narratives, the stories collected and created as part of the project exemplify storytelling and survival as performative and intentional everyday practices, valuing daily and repetitive actions as a central part of the embodied knowledge that makes activism possible, highlights being there and showing up as the pillars of the Comisionada's political practice. I thought this project really resonates with some of Dr. Tomas Aponte's work, in part because Dr. Lizarazzo conceives of this social scientific contribution as an integral co-production between scholar and research subject. Now, when I hear the stories hosted on the Mujeres Pacifica site, I'm reminded of how powerfully we can build, reorient, and reinvigorate our social science theories just by listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We'll have much more for you on the next installment of Retrieving the Social Sciences. Stay tuned. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Jefferson Rivas. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent UMBC events. Until next time,
keep questioning.